Welcome, everyone, to the Luke Cage podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Time to check these fools. Luke Cage podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 103. Who's going to take the weight? It's brought to you by Joel Spurlock's Mertuary Services. He gets rid of nobodies. Before we kick things off, Pete, just want to say here we are just, uh, wow, less than 24 hours away from the start of New York Comic Con. Definitely looking forward to uh, seeing some of our our New York peeps there at uh, NYCC at the Javits Center. A lot of uh, Marvel TV stuff going on, especially Friday and Saturday night. So definitely uh, be following us on uh, on the social media to see where we're up to. And hopefully we can uh, cross paths with some of you as we did last year. It's always a magical experience to uh, to be making new friends or moving, moving people from e-friends to, wow, you're physically before me status. So uh, make sure you say hi. Absolutely. And while we will not uh, be doing any Luke Cage stuff at New York Comic Con, uh, we have an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. panel and an episode screening. We have the Iron Fist date, which was announced today as we're recording, um, which will be St. Patrick's Day 2017, 3 Um, We're attending a panel where we will meet the cast in public for the very first time Saturday night. And who knows, Matt, what else they might choose to show us. So it'll certainly be exciting. Uh, And we, of course, will bring you all of the news out of New York Comic Con, courtesy of our pop culture podcast, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, the forthcoming Iron Fist podcast by Fantastic Geek. You're hearing it. For the first time, yes, we will be rounding out the four Defenders shows. And uh, Matt, do I speak too soon if I say we'll be podcasting the, the Defenders miniseries as well on Netflix? Oh, man, man, Br- breaking news here, Pete. But uh, certainly an exciting time to be doing what we do. But Pete, let's get going on this episode. The Lowdown, where we review what's going on in the episode. Pete, where are we starting? The tease here, gunfire in the Crispus Attic's building. Man screams, he's killing everybody, man. And suddenly, Matt, hashtag it, couch out the window. <laughs> it is such a, a wonderful, energetic moment as... It tends to be when one throws a sofa out a second story window. Um, you get the sense that they were like, you know what, guys, we're shooting here. It's nighttime. It's in the middle of the night. Can we just do this in one take with three cameras and just get out of here? There's a rawness to it. We're like, they didn't try that again. They just threw a sofa out the window as fast as they could. That thing was booking as it came out. And there's your shot. That's a wrap. Good night, everybody. It's true to the character and the way that Daredevil had, you know, that second episode long hallway battle and they made an attempt at, you know, recreating it in the second season. And, uh, you know, Jessica Jones did some some different things, a little bit more atmospheric and edgy. This is true to the character. This is, you know, the tank 
the the blunt force and i think uh this scene obviously when we return to it earlier that day um to see the 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 mayhem and the glee <laughs> of using that sofa as all those guys stream into that room um it's great before luke clad in the hoodie here strides out with uh, the duffel bag full of cash as we head to the title card as he walks out i had wondered if perhaps there were there were shades of isaac hayes in the soundtrack definitely a little uh, a little uh, little walking music there and as you said pete hood up as he comes out and uh during this title card sequence i could not help but notice could not help but be excited uh, to see that this episode was directed by Oscar-winning cinematographer Guillermo Navarro. That's uh, that's the Oscar winner for El Labertino del Fono. That's Pan's Labyrinth in uh, in English, and he's he's uh, been cinematographer for a whole bunch of great movies that uh, all of us have seen. Whether it's uh, on the uh, goofier end like Twilight Saga or the Hellboy movies. Um, from dusk till dawn even so to have this guy doing tv we'll talk later some of the qualities that he he brings to it but right off the bat definitely exciting credit there in the title card well earlier today that uh as the uh superimposed tells us uh we have a news reporter voiceover as a flat screen tv in cornell stokes office Wait, that's his office? I thought that was the Fantastic Geek office. As soon as I saw it, I said, they filmed inside the office. (laughs) When were they there? Uh, The TV flips around there. Of course, they're talking about the shootout at Pop's Barbershop. Luke awakens, and uh, the voiceover talks about how Wilfredo Diaz has been critically wounded. There's a rising tension now between black and Latino street gangs after the shootout. And uh, Luke eyes that swear jar, which we still don't know, Matt. It's it's a prevailing mystery. (laughs) What's going on with the swear jar? Um, But uh, all of this, it seems, may mar this new Harlem renaissance. And... uh, as Luke hits the streets here, he looks in on Genghis Connie, who seems to be checking out a stack of bills at a table near the window there and heads to the memorial for Pop. Always forward. I like that this brief little story check-in with Genghis Khani, they, they don't overdo it. Who? What else are you doing inside your business with a stack of envelopes looking with a furrowed brow? I mean, what is it other than bills? We don't need cut to, insert shot, overdue, overdue, over, you know, like just we, we can get it. We can feel it. We can move on. We've all sat there and looked at the pile of, the pile of mail and said, oh, man, got to pay the bills. It's, it, it's, it's uh, narrative expediency here. And you mentioned Pete Luke being at this uh, this street side memorial for Pops. Here is where we see Oscar winner uh, Guillermo Navarro and his cinematography, albeit he's acting as a as a director for this episode. The focus is pulled so tight on Luke as he leans in and the camera moves forward. 
the focus is so tight that for a split second, it's actually blurry. Why would you use an imperfect shot like that? I guarantee you it's because his performance is perfection. They likely did a number of takes. This was the best performance, even though the camera work is off a tiny bit. And you just feel the broken heart of Luke Cage here. Everything else is suspended, and it's a wonderful shot. The colors are crisp. The close-up is amazing. The acting is through the roof. With this simmering violence, Matt, uh, and the threat of more, we suddenly open a box of uh, toys with uh, guns nestled in between, which are then knocked off, which are stolen out of the hands of those uh, goons. Um, Detective Knight and Scarf are on the scene. Of course, Matt, nobody's seen anything. Not a phrase I can catch phrase. It's just not as catchy. Uh, it is a classic, however, when it's said like it is on the TV show. But what do you know? We don't work blue. They don't know us. They don't see us. And Scarf mentions that he don't hear us either. So, Pete, it's a lot, a lot of S being thrown around there. There is. And uh, these hits, as they talk business, look precise. The victims said the assailants were Spanish-speaking, cottonmouths, oh, who knows. But, oh, Matt, you know, the computer's down. The first in a series of strange events surrounding Detective Scarf in this episode um, that only, on retrospect, add up. The story moves to the funeral parlor, and uh, Luke is looking at coffins for Pops, but he can't go for the top shelf here. Uh, no bother. Stokes arrives shortly thereafter. He's ready to pay up. Pa uh, Stokes mentions that he and Henry never saw eye to eye, and uh, as the scene unfolds, Cottonmouth is clearly absolutely unwilling to take any responsibility for Pop's death. He tell, tells Luke to step off and wishes him luck in his job search. Dishwasher. Yeah, Luke's point, though, that the service should match the man's integrity. That uh, once Joel Spurlock, the uh, funeral director here, gives him the room, they... Uh, they, they get right down to it and that uh, Pop would have never wanted his funeral paid for with bloody guilt money. But that former assistant, that former associate, I should say, Tone, he was feeling himself. He ain't feeling much anything now. In this scene, Mahershala Ali, he's seething and oily and incredible. There's just, there's just so much going on with this character. And similarly incredible is uh, what we have in the next scene, the sad, stilted weight of the world that Ron Cephas Jones brings to Bobby Fish. The scene initially in the barbershop, it's not about too much, just other than them pondering the world without Pops in it. Yeah, and picking up the hat, seeing the puddle of dried blood below, Bobby Fish there talking about how walking into the shop is the hardest thing he's ever done. And it's at this point that, uh, you know, we get the backstory there on Bobby used to play chess with Pop in uh, Marcus Garvey Park. When he got too busy for that, he started coming 
to the uh, barbershop. Um, but who won? Well, you know, the man might be dead, but he's not going to change the facts. Bobby isn't. But uh, now the bank's going to swoop in and uh, take the shop eventually. Um, in addition to chess, Bobby also did the taxes for Pop. And uh, these wolves will be around before you know it. But it's not necessarily too late, Matt. There's a glimmer of hope, isn't there? There is. The shop only needs some way to not pay taxes for 16 years. I'm sorry. The shop needs 80 grand to stay open. Because, <laughs> Pete, you know what? Pops was a good man. Gosh darn it. And hold on. Time out. The shop needs 80 grand. But at the, at the teaser act, Pete, which clearly was at a chronologically later point than we are at now, uh, it appeared Luke had a, a big duffel bag, which we could assume perhaps might have money in it. Pete, do I see the two story points converging ahead in the future if there's one knock in these first three episodes we've done it's the unusual start and stop points that chronologically are so close together you look at the end of uh you know that first episode and we're made to think that what happens with the the uh the young man with the gun holding luke up is immediately after and then come to find that he's casing Crispus Attics, Luke is, to raid it seemingly the next night um, and winds up back in there. And then we have this earlier today set up. It just seems like so much has happened standing in front of Crispus Attics. <laughs> well, I I don't know where we're headed. I, of course, am hashtag spoiler free, as uh, as all the good listeners know. I rather like that there now is this editorial motif where the teaser act is not something to make sure that we don't uh, change the channel from having watched the Grey's Anatomy last hour, and now are we going to stick around for the next uh, next hour of programming? I like that it almost is this. Uh, story in abstract and we don't quite know the connection um, at least for these for these uh, previous two episodes uh, this one included um, it, it's kind of this little snippet and then we learn to understand its importance as the story unfolds and then we hit that moment and move past it I hope it's something they continue with not just oh we have to get something sizzling out of this episode for a teaser because what we wrote didn't quite work well as much as Luke um, wants to put his foot on Cottonmouth. He needs to put his hand in his pockets here. Um, but robbing him caused all this. That's it. We're not going to rob him. We're just going to take his pieces off the board. And uh, Luke goes to work here. He's going to check these fools. <laughs> check these fools with the chess player metaphor here don't go for the king get the queen get the knights get the rooks pete it's all chess moving on we are at the hospital where chico is mournful but not saying anything even as misty spells out exactly his role in it she's figured it out she recounts his history with the boys it's typical detective stuff but it's great to see knight and scarf on the same page pete let me pause right here and say 
When last we podcasted Luke Cage, I said I was spoiled about something for episode 103. What I was spoiled was The Scarf Episode 3 Shocker. And I saw that before watching this episode, and I said, what a shame that they're going to kill off Scarf. Imagine my surprise that the guy who I've been defending for two and a half episodes and defending in this scene, indeed, my next notes say Scarf isn't likable, but he's a workaday detective getting the job done. Pete... These words turn to ash in my mouth. It might even be a larger commentary against the police. I don't know. But I fell for this hook, line, and sinker, even knowing that there was a scarf shocker in this episode. Yeah, you really come to appreciate Frank Whaley's portrayal of this character, particularly the chemistry between he and uh, Misty Knight. And then what happens, happens, man. And uh, we'll just have to see how that plays out. Pete, speaking of that camera flourish brought to us by director Guillermo Navarro and, uh, of course, his editorial team, as the shooting is being described to Chico, I love how Scarf uh, bangs his hand in, into his fist, and that's when we see the shooting again. We hear the, the the shot there. Just a really evocative way to do the detective stuff you have to do, which is, you know, give your suspect the what for and all that. Um, but just a, just an out-of-the-blue uh, moment that really made me sit up and say, oh, say, I can trust this detective Scarf to the end. Yeah, and, you know, Misty being the one to really kind of play the the bad cop here, talking about how they were tight, grade school tight, but this opportunity presented itself. Shamik killed Dante, Chico spills. Uh, you going to admit that? Of course not. He's not going to do that. But then talking about how it became a two-way split instead of three, Chico pretends to not know who Cottonmouth is. Um, and then they come right out. They don't want Chico. They want who killed uh, Shamik. They want who killed um, Pop. They want the bigger fish. He can't help them with that. He just wants these cuffs off. Um, Misty wants him to talk to them, to a grand jury, to step up, Matt, which is repeatedly a theme of this episode, but Chico says the streets will handle, handle it just like they always do. And uh, interesting that she puts uh, her hand on his chest there, Matt, there was a faintly audible squish to a wound there and a little bit of a wince before she left. And then scarf good cops, a man, he unlocks the, the cuffs you're the victim not the suspect you know chico's the man as he flips him his card and leaves well he good cops him but it's it's only good cop in that he's not pressing his gunshot wound like there's this there's this been there done that too cool for school aspect to scarf that i that i like and i was certainly his in his uh, professional persona I, that I mean of the, the character being the, the detective, not also the character being, uh, you know, being bought in a rat and all that. The idea that it's like, Hey, you want out? You're the man, you're the victim. There's a little sarcasm there. Good luck with no money, no clothes. Hey, the only option that you have is to call that number on the card. And 
I, there's, there's, I mean, I hesitate to say world weary again. I know I said that about Bobby Fish, but both, both of those characters, it's like, this is not their first time around the, uh, around the park here. And, and Scarf knows where this is going to end up. That either Chico is dead or Chico calls. And spoiler, if Chico calls, Chico is dead. That's the part we don't quite know yet. Back at the funeral home, we have Cottonmouth, who uh, Mr. Spurlock says has been busy here. Tone is laid out on the other side. It's just the same as always, Matt. Remember, this body can't exist, but it's amazing how a pile of cash makes somebody ask, what body? Indeed, some shenanigans there by the uh, the director. The director of funerals, not the director of shields. That's another show. It'll be back next week. Don't worry, friends. But um, I just, th- I love the presentation here of this this gray community. This in between good and bad. This notion that you know what, you got a body. He'll take care of a body if you got the envelope of cash. In the hospital, uh, Luke is looking around, and what do you know? He runs into Misty Knight yet again, who notes the bartender, the center of attention in the club, in the barbershop of everything. Where are you going? This is a scene that's about the power of the law versus the power of sex. And Luke's references here, counteracting, saying they can work things out in his apartment. This time she can bring her handcuffs. Pete, there's a there's a, a gender play, a sexuality play here that I dare say Luke walks away from looking the worse for it. She's doing her job. He's 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 you know kind of rubbing rubbing her business in her own face there. And it was this moment of uh, I'm not with Luke on this one. That was not a that was not a gentlemanly move from a man who likes to ponder himself a woman. Yeah, and by the time he's in talking to Chico there, he's laying it out that it was Tone who uh, acted on his own. Cottonmouth has his cash. That's all he cares about. Um, But Chico, he's out. For all he knows, the bullet that killed Pop probably bounced off of Luke because you're one of them, ain't you? Pete, it might seem like two different uh, two different TV universes on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. They're called Inhumans, and there's the public eye to it. But, Pete, there's a, there's a uh, I don't know, th- there's a sense in New York that it takes a lot to impress. Do you think that they're walking around saying, pardon me, how's the stuff in the fish pills made you an Inhuman? It's just like... Are you one of them or not? What do bullets bounce off you uh, or not? Because if they don't, let's get moving here. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the fact that the Net- Marvel Netflix shows don't kind of name it. It's not the it's all connected, knit together nerdgasm. There's there, there's a different kind of cool on this show and on the Netflix shows, and that's okay. Yeah, and with the the subtext of this scene here, uh, two people of color, the the potentially hurtful uh, way this is presented about an even uh, you know 
tougher minority to find yourself in and bringing it back to right and wrong that, uh, you know, Luke can be helping people here. And, you know, what did Dante tell you? Uh, Cottonmouth sells guns. It's Mariah who runs the banks. They have drops and stash houses all across the city. But there is one central bank, Matt. That's Crispus Attics. There's a vault in the middle. Um, it's like a fortress, a beehive of misery, he even calls it. And uh, they had scoped out a couple of the stash houses, but decided to hit the gun exchange that Domingo had set up here. And that some of this may just be Domingo hollering, Matt, at Cottonmouth. A beehive of misery. What a poetic line there. Uh, the story then moves back to the club where uh, Stokes, he's just enjoying a drink up in his balcony. The uh, the time is then taken to just let the music play, let that singer sing. It, it eventually gets intercut with Luke hood up, breaking into one of those smaller stash houses. It's typical superhero stuff, good stuff, don't get me wrong. Bent guns, guys thrown, the safe door pulled straight off. He's gone for the police arrive and they find the cash there. Why leave the cash, they ask. So they know it's a stash house, we say. It's kind of, it's one of these moments where we as the audience can see it coming. Of course, that's why he left it. Sometimes at Fantastic Geek, we like to do the straight note read. So I'm going to give you a little bit of flavor here. Charles Bradley Music, Luke Stash House, Safe Gun Bend. Safe Rip Gun Bend. And as as he continues to sing, uh, if you ain't going to do me right, I just might do you in. I mean, what perfection, right? We see that the, the hooded Luke is breaking into a second stash house, smashing machine guns, throwing guys, and all of it barely understood by a woman clearly under the influence. Uh, I applaud the show's narrative restraint for not showing, you know, the needle in her arm or the bottle in her hand. Just it's clear that as a guy breaks in and is knocking stuff over, she's just sitting there. And just like the uh, the flashback to Riva a couple episodes ago, we get in this scene time passing in the camera. We go from Luke to this woman to Misty and Scarf there suddenly time has passed and Pete, there's only one thing that that woman knows about Luke Cage. What was it? He was fine. Meanwhile, great transition here. Outside the Crispus Attics building, all is not fine. You see what they did there, Pete? He was fine. All is not fine. Mariah and Cottonmouth here are meeting once more on the bench. She's pointing out how welders are now reinforcing rooms. She doesn't go in. She wants the bars down on the outside of the building. It looks like a prison. He brings up that he's had four stash houses hit. And uh, she lectures him about not putting all his eggs in one basket. But uh, there's discussion of spin and what is a front for other things. But she says this affordable housing unit, it's going to be something he says it's just laundry um, for the money. 
but she's the face on the money. And uh, the only way to save Harlem is to do it legally. Mama Mabel is invoked for the second time in the series here. Um, she got that jungle gym over there built, Matt, with her political connections. But Cornell points out that her political connections were nothing but freaky old men who were blackmailed. But this vibrant community that is going to come is going to keep Harlem black and them in the green. I love how in this entire scene, it's about two sides of the same coin. Cornell sees himself as the boss with Mariah as the fake uh, front face. Mariah says she's working for real change and legit change in Harlem. Um, the idea that Mama Mabel made small, I mean, no one's saying that the, the jungle gym is uh, the end all and be all here, but made small but important positive change. Meanwhile, you know, or the flip side that she's, she's a blackmailer and the whole thing is a compelling story. Again, this idea in my mind about these characters that are, that are going ethically gray. Mariah wants to go gray to keep Harlem black and Cottonmouth goes gray to get the green. And speaking of gray here, Scarf uh, is back in the precinct house there. And, um, and he thinks that uh, they have made Chico think that he needs them. Pete, my uh, previous appreciation for Scarf uh, continued in this scene here. It's, it's a charming, charming scene in which Misty talks basketball, talks about the Celtics, talks about the Pistons. This is a Knicks town. Um, and her father and her, her background with Pops, it all, it all being brought together by basketball. And she commands the scene there. And and Scarf is the, uh, the the happy audience, and you really get a sense of how close they are as as partners, um, because he right away is happy to call her on sleeping with Luke. There's no shame to it. There's just kind of teasing between two people who 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 work together but don't play together, um, and and. There's such a rapport there that Pete, they were setting us up to break our hearts because Scarf is a bad, bad man. Yeah, and almost almost played a little bit, and I mean this in the nicest possible way by Frank Whaley. It's almost like girl talk. Um, you know, oh, you 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 when did you get with him when you were undercover? Oh, the first night. You know, granted, there's gonna be things you admit to a partner and you know, a partner of the opposite sex, it's it's got to be difficult to broach these things, particularly writing the believability of it. Um, but it really works. And yeah, it sets up that fall beautifully. All the credit in that dichotomy, or at least much of the credit, I think, goes to Frank Whaley for as great as Simone Missick is in the scene. We're on her side. Scarf is the one who has uh, has uh, some unlikable qualities to him. So he's got to, uh, Frank Whaley, the actor, has got to create this space in which we continue to like Misty, but we like him uh, almost in spite of the rough edges of the character. Uh, it's, it's, it's such a pleasure, and I'm glad he didn't get killed off, but now, well, he's probably going to get killed off at some point. I don't know, but... Pete, let's keep things moving here. Back at the club, Domingo arrives. 
he's quick to deny that uh, he's hit Cottonmouth stashes. And Pete, he's eating that Milky Way. He talks about the, the plover. And, and Pete, it's all about the metaphor. It's about the candy. It's about the trash. Take us through it. What a great scene. And uh, the way that this is unfolding here in the Harlem's paradise with the lights on all the subtext here, Matt, we come to the verdad. We come to the truth here uh, blatantly in one another's faces here that the hit was you. No, somebody's pulling your chain. The, the Milky Way wrappers on the floor, uh, the half eaten bite-sized Milky Ways that get thrown on the floor <laughs> several times. And then the discussion of the plover bird here that sits in the crocodile's mouth, picks the scraps out, helps the crocodile avoid infection, and uh, gets the free ride there. Oh, yeah, hey, Cottonmouth, just so you know, you are the plover. I allow you to peddle your guns but you broke your word here how does diamondback feel about that oh you didn't think i knew well domingo wants a refund or the product he was promised and remember the money all uh went away and has now gotten back to cottonmouth however the guns never got where they needed to they were locked up um so Cottonmouth has to inform him there's no return policy. This is not L.L. Bean. This is a great scene highlighted by the great casting choice. This actor that they've gotten to play, uh, Domingo, a man of uh, somewhat shorter stature, but as, as the two characters close the space between them, here they've gotten somebody where in a street fight, uh, in the street fight, Cottonmouth should win, but Domingo is just owning the space. I mean, it helps that he's dropping garbage at the other man's feet. It, it, the whole thing just sizzles, and you know, here we are, three episodes in, no, no sense of being anywhere even, even close to starting to wrap things up. Not that we should, three episodes in, but new character, new oomph, and I hope we see much, much more of him. Yeah, you've seen Jacob Vargas in Selena, Matt, but you've never seen him like this. And it's the performance that makes the writing shine that much more. The the camera angles, the the cut to the feet, and the, the wrapper dropping, and then the half-eaten bite-sized Milky Way chunks. It's it's outstanding television. And then he he drops his last bit of trash and walks out. He still has the, you know, he, he's been eating his chocolate. He's sucking on his teeth, kind of looks around, calls the club nice. It's, it's in that one word, you see what a great actor Jacob Vargas is. Because maybe it's nice, I'd like to own this one day. Or maybe it's nice, I can't believe Cottonmouth actually, uh, you know, a dirty guy like Cottonmouth actually has something this nice. Or maybe it's just... This is legitimately nice. It could be all those things. It could be none of those things. But Pete, here is what there's no question about. With uh, with Domingo gone, Cottonmouth tells Zip, Domingo Cologne has just declared war on us. I just hope things don't get so bad that they have to involve Domingo's, you know, cousin 
Bartolo. That's when you know. That's when you know that there's going to be trouble. Outside the Crispus Attics building, uh, Luke pops in his headphones, and all of a sudden, this is uh, starting to feel eerily similar to the the start of the episode. He walks by that uh, SUV, hold on, pulls the car door to batter his way in. And what follows is more good super strength fun. One hit knocking down three guys, dudes thrown, a pipe ripped out of the wall to be a club. And Pete, it's all leading to that piece de resistance, the sofa. Yeah, I mean, what can you not say that you like or you don't like about this scene with the way that it goes down, you know, the, the car door, uh, to, to use a couch in that room with all those guys and then to saunter out an effective transition yet again of Misty looking at the crime scene photos and imagining things, um, you know, how it went and brought back with the buzz of the, the fluorescence uh, to be inside the 29th precinct here and the the crucial question with all these raids why leave the money behind and this stuff gets logged that all this gunfire and there's no bodies you know they were punched they were slapped they were pulled they were thrown uh but there's no human cost and um it's an ideological conversation that unfolds it, it it really is, and this notion that there's a, an invulnerable vigilante cleaning up Harlem, and, and Scarf is willing to put the vigilantism into a larger context. Someone is doing this needed cleaning job, and cops don't have magic hammers to actually get things done. Um, the the fact that that he is resigned to be uh, a a cop who has limited effect. That's something that has been with the character since day one. And you kind of can, the whole police debate aside, which is an important and a pertinent one, but not uh, directly tied to, to Scarf and Knight here. The notion that police, I'm sure in small places as well, but in big cities must feel like you do what you can do during your shift, but you're never going to stop this this you know, sewer of human uh, wrong that, 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 that a police is producing. That's got to be so frustrating. We get the meta reference, you know, again, the incident we're, we're talking about the battle of New York. He saw it up close and then we get the, the smaller, you know, more intimate references of, you know, well, what, good are you going to do and what do you what will your reward be other than you know a rubber chicken dinner and what's it all worth he's very clearly on the side of these vigilantes while uh detective knight says it'll be anarchy these people lack any kind of training um that they don't fully know what it is they're doing and it could really backfire it's just then matt that the phone rings just in time to wrap up that conversation quickly it's chico calling he needs a pickup 
and the story moves to whoa, scarf. Whoa, hey, there's some definite hints there when you watch that scene. The phrase, Matt, he says, of, of course, Misty can't go because, you know, she's going to stick around and, and do the real cop work because they've had this disagreement, okay? But Scarf says he will get Chico to give up the ghost. Ooh. He does. <laughs> very, very true. Just as a guy across the way says the copy written phrase, Matt. I don't know, S. Uh, Scarf has Chico in a quiet corner eating a burger. Chico is ready to talk. Chico wants to do his part to stand up to name names. Meanwhile, we kind of have Chekhov's necktie going on here. Scarf took it off at the beginning of the scene, scarf, out of the blue. Scarf, man. Oh, Pete, it's all it's all scarf necked. Um, uses that necktie to strangle Chico, and then as soon as it's back on, I love that the the show gives the time to show him putting that that murder weapon back on because as soon as it's around his neck again no one would know that they're that they're looking at a murder weapon and then pete he even finishes chico's fries yeah it's it's a brutal scene it's a necessary scene you didn't see it coming but you go back and you watch and it was really kind of hiding in plain sight that he would do something like this and it's driven home all the more in the following scene when Whaley is playing Scarf like the scum bunny is um, right after uh, Cottonmouth and Mariah have had it out in that balcony office there. Uh, indeed, when Scarf uh, enters, he interrupts Cottonmouth's rant, I, quick becoming Mariah's rant as well. Cottonmouth wants to know where his uh, cop intel is, and Scarf, I mean, Pete, he he takes a handful. He says he's got the pig intel right here. He's got it swinging, Matt. There's bravado here when few people have, uh, you know, been able to show that to Cottonmouth and, and not pay for it immediately. And seeing Frank Whaley slowly spill the death of Chico, the fact that it's none other than Luke Cage who's been busting up these stashes, that is acting at its best. And the accountability uh, and, and the logistics of them as partners, they have to know where one another are. He's got the GPS to Luke's apartment. And if uh, Cottonmouth is good... He'll give it to him here. Um, so it's there that uh, Luke shows back up at Pops where uh, Bobby is hanging out in one of the chairs and um, comes in with the bag of money. There's a repeated reference to needing to fill the swear jar with some salty language here. Um, where's this money come from? Bobby asks though, uh, well ask no questions. Tell me no lies. I found it, uh, a little worrisome in this scene and the following scene with, uh, two people of color in Bobby fish and then Genghis Connie accepting ill gotten money. Yes. It was likely their money at one point. It went to the bad guys. 
it's been Robin Hooded, but it it something felt wrong about it. Pete, we have as we record this a little uh, a little civic debate about uh, about uh, paying your fair share, and I think that if if the big dogs do it at the top where they don't ask too closely if they're if they're paying their fair share or and where those uh, where those savings are coming from. I hear what you're saying that that both Bobby Fish and Genghis Khani know that they're getting ill-gotten money, but I think that they both know, as you said, that that it might be ill-gotten, but it was uh, worse owned before it was ill-gotten. And perhaps too, there's even a little sense of desperation here on both characters. Bobby wants to keep the the barbershop open. That's for the greater good. Here we are back at Mariah again, right? It might be gray, but it's for the right reason. Genghis Khan, she's got her bills to be paid. This this building has been family owned for for multiple generations. She needs to take care of her family, take care of uh, of of uh, her her clients and so forth. So it's a little gray, you know what? It bounces the right way. I hear your concerns. I just think that they don't have your concerns. It's a fair point. And uh, as he settles in, he's starving after the day that he's had. Uh, she wants to know if he went for his run. Well, that's coming up, Matt. Uh, but this money here, it's to make things right. Um, but uh, they, they hug after she puts her hand on his. And then we get that glorious shot of Cornell Cottonmouth Stokes on the roof of a building across the way, Matt brandishing a rocket propelled grenade. <laughs> totally blew me away as when he was reaching for something, I'm like, Oh, sniper rifle. Nope. This is a guy who wants to end his problem and end it with an exclamation point and fires it into the restaurant. Great moment. There is the, the rocket propelled grenade kind of dips and then goes in. Luke has the line, Pete. Sweet sister. So there's hope for Genghis Khani in next episode. Uh, great kind of uh, follow through with the effects as well. It's not just the explosion, but we kind of see the building just in the last second or two of the episode. We see the building ap- apparently starting to kind of fall in on itself. Uh, so, so certainly quite the hook for next time. Pete, now we're going to talk about some bad... Shut your mouth. We're just talking about bad guys, Petey. Who are we talking about first? Cottonmouth with the RPG on the roof. Even when everything seems to be going against him, losing 80% of his cash reserves, getting Fort Knox knocked over. Gleeful, Matt, here. To use uh, what I only can presume, what you can presume, is some hammer tech to uh, lay the smack down. Uh, I mean, he is vicious in his gleefulness. And uh, if you weren't quite sure whether he was, uh, you know, classy businessman or just a, just a well-paid thug, well, you saw the thug in that moment. Um, we 
are getting a little bit more incrementally of Alfre Woodard's Mariah, but that Black Mariah, Matt, was name-checked here. Black Mariah, indeed, a deep comic reference. Um, I'm anxious to get more of the character's backstory. Certainly a, uh, a deep reference to the comics there, uh, but a welcome one. It's always so great to see how, uh, not just Marvel, I mean, everybody does kind of the reinterpretation and the weaving in and out, and, and it's part of the fun of it. And uh, we kind of get that, uh, get that made a bit clearer here with that reference to Black Mariah. Domingo, Matt, uh, showing up after the appearance in the pilot here clearly given a lot to chew on pun intended and uh we have this uh boiling feud between he and cottonmouth which can uh only be interesting for the viewer cannot wait to see more of him he has such charisma this is an actor who's been working for forever so he knows how to uh he knows how to command the screen and uh i say bring on that turf war Lastly, Wither, Detective Raphael Scarf and his seduction here to the dark side, the revelation that he's on the payroll for Cottonmouth Stokes. It's funny, as I said uh, earlier in the podcast, having defended him as, a, as an anti-hero of sorts for, uh, for certainly the first two episodes on the podcast and then for much of my notes in this podcast, I'm a little brokenhearted, but I like that they've added this complexity here. We can only assume that he's gonna he's gonna get his comeuppance, and uh, it'll be well earned when it happens. Pete, before we move on, just want to give a quick thanks to everybody who's been helping us out on Patreon.com/slash/FantasticGeek, helping make sure that the uh, podcast bandwidth and storage costs that we accrue that they're uh, they're helping out. So thank you, Fantastic Geek Patreon community. Big thank you and special shout out there to Mary Kirk for uh, generously donating at the level that she does. Uh, so please check out patreon.com forward slash fantastic geek. The big picture where we break down theories about the road ahead. Pete, let's start with Genghis Khani. Wither Genghis Khani or does she come back? Well, the. The, the powers that Luke possesses obviously create a situation where he may have shielded her. But damn, Matt, if that uh, restaurant didn't take a beating from the RPG. So, you know, we've we've had pop go two episodes in. It would only increase the motivation for Luke to take that fight back to Cottonmouth. So, uh We'll just have to see. The uh, the other big question, of course, it's not even an if, it's a when. This showdown with Domingo's crew, when's that going to happen? And uh, I cannot wait for it. That's going to be definitely an exciting turn as the as the neighborhood succumbs to their uh, to their fight. I mean, it's already happening. We're having one hit the other. There's the the bravado and the machismo. Uh, of the disrespect in the the club there and out on the streets. So, yeah, Matt, I think it's just a, a question of degrees at this point. 
word on the street where we hear from you, the listener. And Pete, I had uh, retweeted a uh, quote from Chio Hadari Coker, the, the showrunner. He had said, we throw viewers into the deep end of the pool of black culture, but don't thrash. Relax. You'll float if you allow it. And uh, there was a response from that one nerd, Ron, that's uh, at Raspiris8. And uh, he said, once we let the cathartic part out, we can embrace it. And I thought that that was a, a a lovely sentiment there. There certainly is stuff that's different about this show than, than the Marvel shows that have come before it. That's part of the point of it. Let's embrace it. There's been this discussion that, you know, there's the reverse racism that it's it's too black like i i'm sorry i can't uh possibly even see your perspective there matt as i wrote on facebook when somebody posted you know one of those stories where people are saying that not that they were saying it in a story it was covering the reaction um you know i i wrote i said watching this show it's so cool. It makes me feel cool by extension, as uncool as I am. Uh, so, you know, big up to uh, Chio Hidari uh, Coker and this world he's captured because the verisimilitude to the Harlem that I've spent time in is really, really high. I mean, yeah, we haven't set foot in, um, you know, the Apollo Theater or you know, gone into uh, particular real world businesses, but, you know, between Pops and Genghis Khanis and Harlem's Paradise and even, you know, the the playground culture that exists there in Harlem with the importance of, uh, you know, streetball. This is a really, really well-captured world. And, I mean, let's look at what the alternative is. Yeah, the the Haley Atwell show I started to watch, and it's like, there she is as the lead, flanked by two supporting people. One, a man in his late 30s who has, who's white and has a couple days worth of stubble. The other, Beth blonde from uh from the walking dead and then who are the two people supporting them one's a man of color one's a woman of color it's that's played out let's get some different perspectives in there and not give different perspectives fourth and fifth billing on a team of five let's mix this up here let's let's as coker said let's let's go into that deep end let's see what we find and let's find the beauty in it even if it's different God bless this creative team for even having to put up with these questions in 2016. Pete, you, you hit the desk there for emphasis. I, what more can be said? Let's move on to contact info. How can people be in touch with you on the Twitter? You can send your rants to me on Twitter <laughs> at Peter, P-I-E, uh, T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R 8,427 followers can't be wrong or you can send them to Matt <laughs> while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost you can be in touch with the podcast in a whole host of ways we are Fantastic Geek that is fantastic with the P and the H you can find us under that name on the dot com the Gmail the Instagram the Twitter but wait Pete there's more 
facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek with the ph all one word like it today and be a part of our neighborhood pete we will be back soon with the podcast for luke cage episode 104 until then i will say goodbye to one and all and give you the final word if it ain't gonna do me right i might just do you in. Mm-hmm.